It's time for Comfort, Peace, and Freedom with Ken Rusk. Ken's guest this week is Phil Ream. Phil is a farmer and owner of Ream Family Farms. His family has been growing produce in Ohio for five generations. Phil and his family provide organically raised fruits and vegetables through their roadside stand, farmer's markets, and CSA program. Ken and Phil will talk about all that goes into running a family farm and how they stay competitive in a busy food marketplace. Now, here's your host, Ken Rusk. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Comfort, Peace, and Freedom podcast. I'm Ken Rusk. Each week, I try to interview world-class personalities about exactly what it takes to become successful and their thoughts on my three favorite words, comfort, peace, and freedom. So let's get right to it. Phil Ream, welcome to the Comfort, Peace, and Freedom podcast. Thank you so much for being here. I know you're really, really busy this time of year. Thanks for having me. I was really, really psyched to have this conversation because for a lot of reasons. Number one, I heard something uh, on the radio several years ago, and it just hit me. It just stuck with me. And um, it was by Paul Harvey. And I want to listen to that in a minute. But I want to tell everybody a little bit about you first. You are the owner of Ream Family Farms, and uh, you're in Old Fort, Ohio. You have such an honorable occupation. Um, you have an occupation that can't be done away with. You have an occupation that is so absolutely important to the welfare of people, to the health of people, to the food supply for all of us. And I, I don't think people sometimes understand that when they go to the grocery store, somebody like yourself created all of that. And so I, I just thought it was important that um, that we have a conversation about the American family farm, how important those things are. Are you all right with that? Yeah, I'm all right with that. The farm, our current farm is in their fourth and fifth generation. I farm with my parents we're, they actually own it right now, and we're in the midst of some transition, but uh, proud to be farming with our fourth and fifth generation. So you're talking about great-great-grandfather? Or one more great, I'm not sure. Those are <laughs> one great, great, great would be three, great-great would be four, great-great-great would be five. So when did the farm begin? Uh, the farm's been in operation since 1911, so I wow. age pretty well, don't I? Yeah, you had yeah, you, <laughs> you aged really well. Must be that fresh air there. Joke I, al I always tell too much. <laughs> <laughs> I tell them that's because I eat my fruits and vegetables. That's how I talk. I do. We do school tours and stuff. I talk to oh, that 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 is that is so great. I met Phil through my daughter and son-in-law who hooked us up with with the farm share program. Maybe talk a little bit about that. Like how did how did that all get started for you? How how do you think farm sharing got its start in in general? Do you think? Let me jog my memory a little bit. I could be wrong, but I think it started in Germany. Could totally be wrong in the country, but I, some it started uh, abroad anyway, where a group of folks pooled their money together to hire a farmer to grow their food. Um, that's how it kind of all started. And then it worked its way into the United States. Um, I know it was really big in Wisconsin. Wisconsin does like coalitions where large or large corporations get like, if they're in a CSA, then they get uh, money off their health care or get other perks as well. And then my mother primarily had the foresight to see this kind of coming down the pipeline. The farm was struggling, honestly, probably, geez, I was in college after college 20 some years ago. My folks decided to make a pivot and grow CSAs. And we had to have been one of the first ones in Ohio to pick up the model. And then it's just expanded and evolved 
since then. I've been back on the farm now for the home farm for, I think, nine years or going into my ninth year. So we've evolved to where we would just grow a few vegetables. And then what we had is what you got as a member, what was ever in season. And then we've evolved it to add customization features. And now when the pandemic hit, we had an online platform already and other folks around us did not. So we love to support our community and help out local businesses. So we invited other businesses to join us. And just, we even sold Girl Scout cookies in our online share just to help out the Girl Scouts. And we did like 200 cars in two hours through our U-shaped driveway. So what is it, when you say a CSA, can you tell us what that means, CSA? CSA stands for Community Supported Air Culture. And people probably don't know, um, but the foodie, more people probably do. Um, so it's just a way for community members to be able to support their farmers, just how was it all originally intended. Most CSAs still probably to this day, and for us a few years ago, members would pay for their share all up front. That allowed the farmer to purchase his seed, purchase, purchase his fertilizer, whatever repairs, equipment he needed to do, et cetera was paid up front. And that's what it was originally designed to do when um, original folks, you know, hired their farmer to grow their food for them. So when you're talking about a CSA and you're talking about how farms have pivoted to that to help their survival, why did they need to do that? Is it because there is the markets were shrinking to do it the traditional way, which is to just to grow as much as you can and sell it on the market or? Sure. I can kind of like speculate for others and tell you like why we did it. I know that there's not a whole lot of CSAs in Ohio. I don't know, even if I had to speculate, maybe 100, 200, I don't know, really. Sometimes I live in my cocoon here, right, right here on the farm and don't know on out about. For us personally, uh, we pivoted for financial reasons. We used to do a lot of wholesale. When I was a young boy growing up, 13, 14, 15, 16, 17 years old, our current barn was a packing shed for tomatoes for Meyer Warehouse. Uh, we would grow 20 plus acres of steak tomatoes and then ship them to Meyer Warehouse, which is is perfectly fine, but the wholesale market is very cutthroat. So if they have too many tomatoes in their warehouse and they don't need any more, you all of a sudden get cut out and you have tomatoes and tomatoes coming with nowhere to go. And that happened a couple of times to us. So we had a couple of bad years and then that's when dad and mom decided to make a pivot. Now, is that, is that a change? Is that a change from how it used to be? Because it used to be you would take all of your tomatoes and you would go to like a central processing area. They would collect them and then sell them to various markets. What you're saying is you actually had a direct customer in Meyer where you skipped that kind of like market process and went directly to, to, the, to the end user. And then if something went wrong there, they, uh, they could just cut your order back or they could. They well, could up, up, in up. that model, we were far from the end user. We were we were delivering to a warehouse and the warehouse distributed to all the stores in its region. And then obviously then goes to the goes to the grocery store and then members buy it. So we were three or four steps away from being direct to consumer. So you're, you're balancing that bulk sale with the the CSA, which again, my, my daughter Nicole and Peter and, and and my wife Nancy and I, we love it. I, I was at uh, at the, uh, the the pickup site a few weeks back and I met you and 
I just loved what you were doing. I mean, you're literally supporting, growing and supporting food for the people in your region. You know, right. it's, it's funny because when you, when you talk about people who have allergies and they say you should have local honey because that's where the bees are transferring pollen around and that's what helps your allergies. I got to believe that eating locally grown vegetables has got to be a benefit over something that comes from California or somewhere else. What'd you think? The real benefit is anytime you harvest close to peak ripeness, you maximize your flavor and nutrition. So if I'm growing the same varieties that somebody is shipping to a warehouse, but I pick mine at peak ripeness and he has to pick it five days a week or more in advance to be able to get it all the way through the supply chain, obviously local wins. Would you say that in that scenario, I know that there's just something about taking that box home and putting it on the counter and knowing that all that stuff came from a very local area. I, I just think there's something comforting about that, that, that we know right where it came from and the fact that we're supporting people locally. Would, would you say that farming in general, as you know it, would you say that it's growing it's shrinking the state of small farms versus the state of large farms. I mean, wh where do you see that happening and why is it so important that we keep the family farm? So I would, I would say that small families farms are shrinking. Big farms are still growing. The average age of an Ohio farmer, when I looked this up several years ago, was in the mid-60s. So even my folks are still in the average range for um, an Ohio farmer. So the world, the, the state of Ohio needs more young farmers and a CSA model is a, an easier route for them to be able to do it because you don't need a lot of land. You can start out small, still work at uh, another job and grow it naturally, organically would be a good way to do it. A large family farms where they're growing a lot of corn, soybeans, so on and so forth. And there are thousands and thousands of acres without somebody being rich or having it inherited would be very hard for somebody to go out and buy a combine 300, 400,000, a tractor, a hundred thousand and all these other equipment and land at good land is around here is 10,000 an acre to be able to start that way and all the loans and everything involved would be massive but growing vegetables flowers different meats chicken beef pork eggs things of that nature um on a small scale and growing it organically is a way that young folks could start out what would you say i want to get back to the natural or the organic thing in a minute but what would you say when, when you say a small farm or a small family farm, how many acres are you typically thinking about when you think of that? That's all relative and perspective based on people's experience. Somebody could say a thousand acres is small and somebody could say uh, one acre is large. So I don't know. Our farming operation, we own and rent 220 acres here. About on average, 35 acres goes into vegetable production on an annual basis. Okay. And, and in your case... Is that enough to sustain a family if that was a full-time scenario? Yeah, it is. So I'm I'm full-time on the farm and my parents are full-time and then we have three to four full-time staff. So if you were speaking to an 18-year-old who wanted to be a farmer and he wanted to make a living doing it, what would you tell him? I would tell him to go find a CSA farm and work for them for two to five years 
learn as much as you possibly can, learn the marketing side, learn the growing side, maybe even several farms. I know that I worked on two different successful farms out of college before I came back to the home farm, and I'm sure glad I did. It gave me a lot of depth. It gave me a lot of perspective. Don't jump right in on your own. Quit your job. Try and do it. There's so much to learn unless you grew up with it. Even if I grew up with it and I did at 18 years old, it still would have been very hard for me. There's a lot to it. So you went to college and one of the things that we talk about, you know, I wrote a book called Blue Collar Cash. And in that book, I talk about the fact that we really need to get back to paying attention and destigmatizing blue collar jobs, whether you're a welder or a plumber, or electrician, a carpenter, a farmer, um, a hairdresser, someone who owns a bakery or a small restaurant. And we need to give those jobs respect again, because people are not willing to go into those jobs. You were just mentioned that the average age of a farmer is 60 or 60 plus. The average age of an electrician today is 55. And for every 10 that are retiring, only five or six are coming online. And so what that does is that drives up the demand, shortens the supply and creates a huge boon for an electrician who wants to start out because that's where the money's going. So how do you relate that to farming? Can, can you kind of say the same thing for farming? Yeah, absolutely. And I can agree with you, like on the electrician side, because farmers can be jack of all trades, but there's certainly trades that we're better at some than others. I'm not a very good electrician or not the greatest mechanic. The electrician that we had working for us recently retired, and I know it's been a struggle. We've been doing a lot of work ourselves. There's not, they're not really out there. I'm starting to see like, more technical schools and less people going to colleges, even in high school, you know, down to like freshman, sophomore age, um, you can go work on plumbing, electrical, so on and so forth, which is great. College is, college is good. I mean, college rounded me out, forced me to study, produce good habits, that type of deal. But yeah, I, I think there's a huge opportunity. That's what I kind of, I have kids that are 14 and 10. And, you know, I would kind of like them to go down that, right? You know, go to a career technical school and build up a trait and then build a business for yourself if you want to build a business or go work for somebody else. Because like you said, electricians, plumbers, so on and so forth, they're in huge demand. Even people that do construction. Could you do the same with farming? Could you make a living, support your family with a farm? And is there a chance to to make a really good living? I, I know that they say that sometimes you hear, well, he's he's... I know that guy, he's a rich old farmer. <laughs> and so my, I guess my question is, can you create wealth with a farm? Yeah, I think s some of it has to do with, wealth comes in various ways, by the way. Yeah. I, think I'm, I think I'm very wealthy as far as being able to have a family farm, work off God's land, hire excellent staff that we have here at the farm. I'm rich all in that way. Is my bank account rich? No. So there's that. Can you get rich farming? It's hard. Like you have to have a lot of luck along the way as well, or some inheritance or something. It, it, it's just a, I'm letting people know that farming is a rewarding and tough go. We've worked really hard to make it financially sustainable for two families. Well, and that's the thing. So because you, you hit it on the head. So wealth comes in various forms. And, and one of the things I always talk about in my book is the level of comfort, peace, and freedom you want is just what you think it should be. 
we're not all going to chase 15 cars and McMansions and mega yachts and all this kind of stuff. I mean, there are people out there that say, if I could live like this, if I could control my input and control my output, control the quality of my work, the length, the time, the schedule, the day, and then eventually the financial gain, well, then I, I really have true wealth. If I have the freedom to be outside, and like you said, working on God's land, helping other people, you know, stay healthy and, and eat and, and, and eat properly. I, I think there's a lot of wealth in that. So I guess the point is, is that you have to look at wealth in the overall sense of what you're accomplishing, what you're contributing to the world versus right. just being a TikToker or some kind of an influencer or something like that. So here's a fun fact for you. Did you know that only 14 out of every 100 adults describes themselves as happy? That's a pretty low number. The question you have to ask yourself is, are you one of those lucky few or do you feel like there's more to life out there? I've been fortunate to work with some brilliant course designers to create a course that will help you define and build comfort, peace, and freedom in your life. I call it the path, and it is a great way to help you identify what you really want out of your life and to develop the skills necessary to go get it. When you join the course, not only will you receive a digital copy of my Wall Street Journal best-selling book, Blue Collar Cash, but you'll also get lifetime access to the best goal-setting tactics that I have used to turn myself into an effective, goal-oriented machine and take control of my mind, my money, and my life. All of this great information is normally available to you at $129. However, for you amazing listeners of today's podcast, you can get lifetime access to the path for just 99 bucks. And if you do it today, I'll do you one better. Get involved now and I'll actually donate a free course and a free book to any one of your choosing. So you can not only change your own life, but help someone else in the process. And what can be better than that? So just use the link in today's show description and the discount code podcast to get started. Okay, let's get back to the conversation. Well, Phil Ream from the Ream Family Farms. What do most people, like, give me the top three best things about being a farmer. For me personally, it's um, being able to work God's land, like we said earlier. And for me, also working with family is important. Family is valued pretty highly um, with me. I spend a lot of time with my folks here on the farm. My wife and kids need some of my family time as well. So there's a balancing act. It's just something that's in my blood, actually. Like when I was a small kid, I would farm like tractors and wagons and combines on the carpet, you know, make rows on the carpet. I would yeah. use the, the register as my grain station to dump my grain. You know what I mean? It, you know, sure. it was all pretend, right? So it's been in my blood since the beginning. And you have to have, if you want to succeed in this business, you have to have a deep passion. Yeah. And, and again, the, 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 there's always a why, right? There's always a why are we doing what we're doing? And, and I think that's the beginning for anybody. I, it, it doesn't really matter to me whether you go to college, you go to a tech school, trade school, you go to, you do an apprenticeship, you work right out of high school, you work in a military career or, you know, something that, that you're doing, which is so needed and, and so unique. What do you think is, is the biggest thing that people don't know about being a farmer? Well, I can tell you from the employees that we've had in here over the years, um, the number one thing they say over and over again is, I didn't realize this was so hard. This is so much work. Like They don't realize everything that goes into growing your food. 
it's more than just putting the seed in the ground and letting it grow. There's all the steps. There's first condition the soil with cover crops. You have irrigation that you have to maintain and all those steps along the way. You look at it, you have to know, look at be able to look at the crop and know what the crop needs. Um, and then you have the whole dynamics of the weather to deal with on top of that. Like if you could control the weather, farming would be easy, right? Sure. Uh, yeah. Like you have to prepare for a seven inch rain and you have to prepare for the drought, a drought at the same time. And uh, how does technology, you know, if, if you think of it, uh, any trade, when you used to cut pipe uh, as a plumber, you would use a hacksaw. Now you have these pipe cutters that do it in seconds. When you used to swing a hammer as a carpenter, you'd have a, a hammer and you'd be hitting nails all day. And now you have a nail gun, which is light years ahead of swinging a hammer. What type of technology do you use that wasn't available years ago that uh, that makes this a little more palatable? Sure. I'll speak from two different sides. I'll speak from the large farming side and how technology has just exploded. Um, and then from our side, first from the large side, equipment is getting bigger and bigger. 12 row, 18 row combines and planters. They can now GPS, auto steer. They even have it now where you can farm without putting a human in, in the field at all. Uh, it's kind of crazy. From our side, we've more advanced from the technical support side as far as the computer side and the internet and the inner workings of being able to customize shares and so on and so forth. We are rather low tech, actually very low tech as far as the the farming side. <laughs> Somebody a year or two ago was taking pictures alongside the road of my dad um, working ground. And after my dad made a few rounds, he's like, you know, may I ask what you're doing? He's like, I'm just just watching, doing a little filming, like of your antique tractor. <laughs> my dad shook his head because the tractor was a 19, the tractor is a 1970, I was born in 79. So it's around a 79. It's about as old as I am, right? Which is <laughs> not considered antique to us. Right. But this particular person thought it was an antique tractor. <laughs> well, you know, it's funny because I was in, I was in Iowa for a, a wedding a few years back and, and I happened to stumble across the John Deere museum over there and and i went into it and they had the oldest tractor that they've ever built which was some 1800 thing it was amazing to see the big square wheels and the and the just the there was so much iron that went into this thing it was crazy and and you know the wheels with the treads in them that were made of metal you know and and mm -hmm. um, just just a really cool uh, old machine and right next to it they had their newest modern this thing looked like an Apache attack helicopter. I mean, it was, first of all, gigantic. I had to climb like eight rungs on a ladder to get into this thing. It had four wheels in the front, four wheels in the back. The thing that was interesting is inside the cab, it had three different chairs. There was chairs to face forward. There was chairs facing backward. It was really amazing. Had all these command centers in it. And I thought, holy cow. I mean, farming's come a long way, hasn't it? What was it? What kind of implement was it? Well, it was something that was dragging other things. It was dragging stuff behind it. Like that's that that's what its main goal was. But it you was look, a tractor of some sort then. Yeah, it was a it was a again, it had four wheels and it was yeah. all there were dual wheels and I could sit inside of each one of these wheels. It was gigantic. Right. <laughs> yeah. I just couldn't believe it had all these chairs in the inside. Like it was like a multiple people were using it at the same time, or maybe they were just sitting in the back you know, working the, 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 the implements behind them and it was moving on it, moving itself forward. But 
just a really, really bizarre thing to see how far that's come from the original tractor, which, you know, was just, just a little bit more than a horse at that point. Right. <laughs> yeah. If you want to, if anybody wants to like YouTube, a bigger tractors, look up big bud, big buds, a, a huge tractor where they pull, like they can pull like, I don't know, 40, 50 bottom plows. Like it's just crazy how big the tractor is. It probably has, I don't know. It probably has 20, 30 years. <laughs> So you were talking before I, I, I mentioned that I thought maybe you were, you know, there was some seasonality to what you do where, you know, you grow during the season and then you prepare the fields for the spring and then you spend the winter fixing things or repairing things. But that that's not your world. You, you do this year round. Can you talk about that a little bit? Yeah. So this is this will be our first year going 12 months. Well, we've always grown Lately, we've grown 12 months out of the year, but being able to sell through a CSA model 12 months out of the year. So for us, where I worked at um, a farm, the Chef's Garden in Huron, Ohio, is where I worked at before I came back to the home farm, where I learned a lot about season extension and have it as early as you can, have it as late as you can, and have it consistently in, consistently in between. Like, don't run out in the middle. Have it consistently. And we were struggling in the a few years ago to be able to retain the high quality employees that we need to be able to make the farm successful because you only grow the business with quality folks. Um, you can't grow the business with mediocre folks or folks that aren't as good. You're only as good as your weakest link, so to speak. Um, sure. So we grow the farm with quality folks. We're blessed to have quality folks now, but we always have that gap. You know, you grow six, eight months out of the year and then you got that gap with like no employment for them are very to little and no employment for them. And then you can't expect to get them, hardly get them back unless, I mean, you know, they're on their closer age towards retirement or they're younger and they haven't established their full career. Now we're getting, we're getting folks that are, you know, close to my age where the spouse works as well. We're getting um, a lot of depth in our employees now because we're able to go year round and keep them here working almost 40 hours a week year round. How, how do you do that? You, you talked about the greenhouse. Talk, talk about the difference between a greenhouse and farming in the field and why it's so important to have that to extend your season. Yeah, growing in the greenhouse and, and there's different levels of greenhouses. There's, you can have, you can grow in the field and then you can put a low tunnel on it. It's like knee high and it has perforated holly to be able to extend the season. You can put a tunnel on it that has, um, ropes that go back and forth and it may be like chest high and it's called like a small caterpillar tunnel you can do a larger caterpillar tunnel where you can like barely get inside and stand up and then you can have bigger greenhouses that are like 30 30 by 96 which we have well not all of them the same dimensions but we have roughly 10 of those and then you can just keep adding as you go i mean you can add grow lights you can add shade cloth you can add all the technology inside them if you want for us, we only heat two greenhouses um, in the spring to be able to start our transplants. We borrow a neighbor's greenhouse. He actually is an hour away, but um, he's doing flowers and mumps and all kinds of other stuff. So we just ha have him grow some of our winter vegetables. So we don't have to turn a greenhouse on, a big greenhouse for a small amount of space. Yeah, greenhouses can be many different things. We use them to obviously extend the season but they help in the summertime. We grow tomatoes in there as well because crops get disease pretty easily in the field. Windborne diseases, anytime you have uh, like tomatoes, for example, out in the open air and you get 
rain splashing on them, they can get bacteria pretty easy. So in the summertime, it keeps our tomato plants dry, which decreases disease a lot. And then in the wintertime, we just extend the season. We don't allow the ground to get frozen very much. Some vegetables can handle freezing ground, but you're really just protecting the crops from the harsh wind and the cold wind in the wintertime. Uh, like out in the field, we still have kaolettes, Brussels sprouts, spinach, lettuce, things like that. But once we start getting into December, January, and you start getting below freezing temperatures and heavy winds, it'll wind whip and burn them, so to speak. So, so you're still harvesting those types of crops. Would, would, would I know the difference in taste or, or texture of either lettuce or tomatoes if one was grown in the field and one was grown in a greenhouse? Depending on how it was grown in the greenhouse, there's several different ways to grow in the greenhouse as well. Let me back up a little bit and um, and educate from the side of because I thought you were you thought your question was going to go different times of the year, but you went greenhouse versus field. So let me go uh, let me go different times of the year. So kale, Brussels sprouts, even like some of the cabbages, all the coal crops, um, all the crops in that family, and then you get into other leafy greens like spinaches. So where I'm going is when. Mother Nature brings on cold temperatures. The starches turn to sugar in the plant as a matter of survival for the plant. It's increasing its cell wall. It's increasing the sugars in the plant to be able to survive in the cold weather. The benefit to us on that is the sugar and the, the sugar level goes up in the plant and the nutritional level goes up in the plant. So I don't, I don't eat Brussels sprouts or spinach in the summertime at all. We have them, but not until the weather gets out out for December, those really start to taste good. So on the that's the flip side of the seasonality. And the same thing in, in the in the wintertime, like you get into like, say I'm growing tomatoes and I have them ready in early ones. I have them ready in June or July. They don't taste as good as those ones that are in August. Um, it's just the way mother nature kind of works. Um, the tomatoes taste better in the summertime when you're maximizing your sunlight, capturing all that solar energy. And the spinach in the wintertime does better when it's the starches turn, turn to sugar. So then on the greenhouse side, we grow in the greenhouse, but we grow in the soil. So if you were to ask, you know, say I have a in the greenhouses in the soil in June, it's like August outside in the field kind of the climate goes and the temperature goes so i could take a tomato in june and eat it from the greenhouse and it would taste better than one from the field in the same time of year in the june if you went june to june it's going to taste better in the greenhouse um you're capturing more more heat more light so on and so forth and that's that's uh, really interesting and again it's it's a way of growing you're basically saying you're growing 12 months a year at that point right yeah, we are growing 12 months of the year. Just my total personal opinion, some will agree, some some won't, but I feel like growing in God's soil and taking care of God's soil and trying to leave it better for the next generation than I have it and so on, I just think, and I've tasted them before, I just think that versus hydroponic where you're growing in the water and you're putting supplements into the water to be able to grow it, it's to me, it's not the same as God's ground. Well, you know, it's funny you mentioned God. Yes. Obviously, you know, your faith is important to you. And I think that's a wonderful thing. Uh, I think the timing is perfect for me to share something with you that 
uh, I heard a very long time ago, and um, I'm going to share my screen real quick. And I want you to make sure I want to make sure that you can hear this. So this is Paul Harvey talking about farming. And I, I was absolutely blown away when I heard this for the first time. And I think he did this many, many years ago. It doesn't say on here exactly, but I want you, it's only two minutes long, two and a half minutes. I want you to listen to it and tell me what you think about it afterwards, okay? So here we go. And on the eighth day, God looked down on his planned paradise and said, I need a caretaker. So God made a farmer. God said, I need somebody willing to get up before dawn, milk cows, work all day in the fields, milk cows again, eat supper, then go to town and stay past midnight at a meeting of the school board. So God made a farmer. God said, I need somebody willing to sit up all night with a newborn colt and watch it die and dry his eyes and say, maybe next year. I need somebody who can shape an axe handle from a persimmon sprout, shoe a horse with a hunk of car tire, who can make harness out of hay, wire feed sacks and shoe scraps who planting time and harvest season will finish his 40-hour week by Tuesday noon and then pain in from tractor back, put in another 72 hours. So God made a farmer. God said, I need somebody strong enough to clear trees and heave bales, yet gentle enough to yean lambs and wean pigs and tend the pink-combed pullets who will stop his mower for an hour to splint the broken leg of a meadowlark. So God made a farmer. It had to be somebody who'd plow deep and straight and not cut corners. Somebody to seed, weed, feed, breed, and rake, and disc, and plow, and plant, and tie the fleece, and strain the milk. Somebody who'd bale a family together with the soft, strong bonds of sharing. Who would laugh, and then sigh, and then reply with smiling eyes when his son says that he wants to spend his life doing what dad does. So God made a farmer. Have you ever heard that before? Many times. I have the saying on the wall in my bathroom. When you hear that clip and you're passionate like I am, it almost makes you tear up a little bit. It, it, it's a tearjerker for me because everything in there is absolutely true. Farmers need to be so diverse in what they do on a day-to-day -day basis. They put in all kinds of sacrifices to do what's best for the land, do what's best for the health of the animals. Yeah. To us, the cattle are not just a number. They're our livelihood. Sure, we have to butcher them in the end for, for meat production and all that, but we're not going to let a calf die if we can help it. If we need, if we need to pull a calf um, or if we need to uh, help a mother along the way, we're going to do what we can to ease the pain to make it the best situation we can. And if, and if it doesn't turn out in the best, then, you know, we have to be able to pick ourselves up by the bootstraps and move on as well. Well, it's so funny because I could see, I could see your face when you were listening to that, that you were identifying with it and, and you'd heard it before and it does st strike a chord. And every time I hear it, I wonder how did Paul Harvey get through that without tearing up himself? Because it's such prophetic it's so poetic. It's just, and it's so powerful. And I just think, I think every kid from the time they're in kindergarten to the time they graduate high school should listen to that at least one time per year. So they understand how important farmers are to, to everybody and not to take it so much for granted the next time they see a beautiful yellow pepper or <laughs> a, a sprout of asparagus or um, some strawberries in the grocery store. You know, 
Finally, with the last minute that we have left, and, and thank you so much, Phil, for being with us. I think this was very informative, and I hope people learned a, a lot about farming, and I hope that, that we've motivated some people to to want to take that up and continue this great tradition. In the book, Blue Collar Cash, I talk a lot about comfort, peace, and freedom. I mentioned that earlier, and what that means for each one of us. So I just want to ask you three questions. When you're not farming, okay, when you're not working, where is Phil finding the most comfort? Like, where are you most comfortable? Well, with my family, I'm most comfortable because, like I said, I farm with my parents, but not my wife and my kids are not in the operation. So with my family, I'm most comfortable on the basketball court. I, I coach fifth and eighth grade basketball at local local high school. So this time of year is getting into basketball season. It's a relief for me. Three o'clock, I got to go. I got to go coach sometimes for two hours, sometimes for three and a half. <laughs> That's two. Where else? Well, let me ask you this while you're thinking about that. <laughs> so, so comfortable. You, you find yourself comforting in helping other people on the basketball court. That's so much of what um, Paul Harvey just said. It's beyond farming. It's about the passion that you have for people and animals and everything else. Where do you find the most peace where you're like, okay, I'm chilling. I'm calm. Where do, where do you go to find the most peace? I would go to find the most peace working ground or doing some kind of cultivation or some, some kind of farming operation on a tractor believe it or not i don't get on a tractor very much at all because we're so much more hands-on you know we're hand planting we're hand harvesting um we're hand weeding in a lot of cases for me to be able to sit on a tractor and do a job for four six eight hours a time is rare so if i can go to the field and i can make beds for next year's vegetables or i can plow for a couple hours i'm pretty at peace doing that Okay, um, so you, like, you don't pay attention to the phone too much, just yeah. like up and down the rows in the field. Uh, I don't get to do that too much. So that's pretty peaceful. So it's kind of like when the people have those little rock gardens and they put the rakes in there. It's like, the, you, what do they call that? Feng Shui or whatever they call that, where you, where you rake it. And it's just kind of a, a, it's kind of a cathartic process. It's kind of therapy for yourself to, to get rid of all the hustle and bustle and go back to the original thing, jump on a tractor, get some dirt moving. I think that's fantastic. Even mowing the yard for me can sometimes be, because like when I'm here on the farm, there's so much going on. And your your mind your mind goes in so many different places, and you're you're juggling so many different balls at once. Like to just do a simple a simple thing where, where your brain doesn't have to think. <laughs> right. Yeah, I'm at peace when when that happens. It's funny because I have a back I have a big yard, and I have people that help me mow it. But I leave the back for me because I have the John Deere and I want to make my lines perfectly straight. <laughs> yeah. And that's where I find peace. I mean, if it's not walking my dog or, you know, being on my boat or something, it's I'm making perfectly straight lines in the backyard because it's the one thing I can control <laughs> for sure. It's my fault whether they're straight and it's my fault if they're not. Last question. Where where do you feel, you know, people talk about freedom is, you know, the lack of war or you know, living in a democracy or whatever, where, where do you find yourself the most free? You're like mentally free. You're like, okay, I can just, everything's gone away. Yeah. That same place, that same place where I got peace, where I can, or it's on a, it's like we sometimes deliver some stuff to Columbus on a drive to Columbus or out on the tractor where, where I don't have to think or focus as much. Beautiful. Well, Phil Ream from the Ream Family Farms. It was an honor to talk to you today. As I said before, what you do for a living is something that um, none of us should ever take for granted and we should celebrate. I would hope that there are programs that will help teach young people the value and, and the honor and the work that you do. 
and um, how you support all of us and in, in staying healthy and keeping the world moving, keeping the world spinning, as they say. So thank you very, very much for being with us today. And um, I really, really appreciate it. Yeah, thank you, Ken, for letting me uh, spread the word of our farm and share a little bit of insight about farming in general. Absolutely. Well, there you have it. Some great information from some pretty amazing people. Thank you for taking time to listen to today's show. And I hope that you found some value in what you just heard. If this show positively impacted you in any way, please take a minute to leave a positive review or share it with a friend who could benefit from the Comfort, Peace, and Freedom podcast. I'm Ken Rusk. Until next time, I'll talk to you soon.